Hi, welcome to the New Covenant Presbyterian Church Sermon Podcast, a congregation of the Orthodox Presbyterian Church, the OPC, in the San Francisco Bay Area. Amen. Brothers and sisters, please turn with me in your Bibles to the book of Hebrews. As we return once again to Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 through 4. Please give your attention now to the reading of God's holy word. God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds, who, being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become so much better than the angels, as he has by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. Thus far the reading of God's word. You may be seated. Let's go to the Lord once again in prayer. O Father, how we do pray that you would open our eyes to behold the, the wondrous and incomprehensibly great glory of your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Is this not the thing that we need more than anything else, O Lord, that we would have uh, the eyes of our hearts open in this way, that our faith would be increased, that we would see the glory of Christ, and that we would simply be strengthened to act appropriately in response to his great glory, that we would submit ourselves to him in everything, that we, that we would be obedient, and that we would bring honor and glory to your name. And therefore, O Lord, for the sake of the glory of your name, we do pray that you would grant us this, this evening by your Spirit, for we do ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, a couple of weeks ago, we began looking at Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 to 4 of the same passage that we are considering again this evening. And one of the things that we saw there, and really the main thing that we saw, is that the, the point of Hebrews 1, 1 to 4, is to contrast an old way of speaking with a new way of speaking. That in times past, God did speak in various ways, fragmentedly, and in various methods to the fathers by uh, the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son. And we saw that this is really the main idea of the entire passage, that, that everything else in the passage uh, builds on and is a modification of, is an enhancement of this one great theme, that there is this contrast in the way in which God has spoken and that God has then given his final word, his definitive word in his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. What was fragmentary and varied, the old way of speaking by the prophets, is now whole and complete in the one revelation of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, that is the main idea of the passage. That's what we looked at a couple weeks ago. But you'll notice that there are quite a number of things in the passage beyond that. And really, all of it, every single part of it, is related to the glory of Christ. And so the idea here, in terms of putting it all together, what is the main idea of this passage if we were to include every single element of it? The idea is that the author wants you to know that God has given this definitive revelation in the Lord Jesus Christ. He has spoken finally in His Son. And the Son in whom He has spoken is incomprehensibly great and glorious. 
the Son in whom he has spoken is incomprehensibly great and glorious. Now, why is this important to know? Why is it important to know not just that God spoke in one way in the, in past, in the past, but now he's spoken to us another way in his Son, and then to emphasize so strongly the glory of the Son? The answer is because the more glorious a person is, the more authority the person has, then the worse it is if you fail to obey that person. It becomes a worse sin, and there are worse consequences. And so, for instance, if you were just to meet a random stranger on the street, he tells you to do something, you say, I'm not going to do that. There's really nothing that's, that's at fault. You really have, to have no risk of consequences in that way, and in very many cases, this would not be objectionable at all. If, if a, a parent tells you to do something and you do not obey, then there would be more consequences. There could be discipline that's coming. If you go out into the, the real world beyond the home of your parents and you do not listen to your employer, then there is going to be worse consequences even than that. There will, you, you could be fired. If beyond that, if you do not obey the government, if, for instance, if you are, are brought to trial, brought to court and sued, and you lie under oath, now you've disobeyed the government and you'll, you will face even stricter uh, punishments or be even a greater liability to punishment. Uh, all these things show that as the outward majesty, glory, authority of the one to whom you are subject increases, then the sin for disobedience also increases. And so if you were to then uh, take it even a step further, if a person does not obey a prophet, he is liable to punishment from God because he has not obeyed God because the prophet speaks in behalf of God. Now, it would be even worse for a person if that message were communicated to him directly from an angel. If an angel comes and communicates a message to you and you disobey that, you've disobeyed God, but you've even disobeyed uh, God in such a way that uh, uh, from a messenger that is more glorious than the prophet. And the question then, brothers and sisters, when we come to this passage is this, if a person does not obey the eternal son of God who made the world, who is equal with the Father, who upholds the world by the word of his power, who is the heir of all things, who made an atonement for sins and sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, what will happen to such a person? The point in the whole thing is this. God has definitively spoken by this son. This son is infinitely glorious and therefore you must obey him. The point is to say this, who would dare to disobey such a savior? Who would dare to disobey such a Christ? This is the point of verses 1 to 4. Now, one of the things that I uh, mentioned several weeks ago as we were beginning the book of Hebrews is that uh, the way Hebrews is structured is that everything is always gearing towards the exhortation. So there are various exhortations that come at different points uh, throughout the book of Hebrews, and really everything is gearing towards uh, these exhortations. So, for instance, this this uh, particular passage, verse 4, will end with this comparison with the angels. That becomes the subject of verses 5 through 14. And then in verses 1 to 4 of chapter 2, you have the exhortation. And everything in chapter 1 is gearing towards this exhortation. So it's good to keep it in mind as we go through uh, even chapter 1, verses 1 to 4. The idea is, you know, if, if someone were to disobey the angels, and we remember that there is a, a sense in which the word of God in the Old Testament was established by angels in some way. And if that kind of disobedience met with a just retribution, how is it that we could escape when, if we neglect such a great salvation, which had its beginning in the preaching of the Lord Jesus Christ himself? 
That's the comparison. That, that's the force of the comparison that is being made. And that's the thing that we are to keep in mind as we, as we look at this particular passage in verses uh, 1 to 4 of chapter 1. The point of stating that the Father has spoken definitively in his Son, and then by showing all these ways in which the Son is infinitely glorious, is to prove that you must submit to the Son, that you must submit to the Son. The, the, the author is trying to secure your obedience to the eternal Son of God. And so we'll look at this passage then. We'll actually look at it under two headings. We're, we're mostly looking here at the end of, chapter, uh, of verse 2 through verse 4. And there are a number of ways in which uh, the author tries to highlight the glory of the Son. And remember, all these descriptions are building on uh, the idea that God has spoken definitively in the Son and then saying who that Son is by whom he has spoken. And so there, are, there is first in the, the, the last part of verse 2, there is Christ's glory as the one who is the beginning and the end. So there are things related to the, to the beginning and the end. He's the one who made all things and he will in the last day be the heir of all things. He is the heir of all things now. In the last day, he will inherit all things. And then, uh, and then secondly, we'll look at the way in which uh, the Lord Jesus Christ sat down at the right hand of God. And that's in verses uh, 3 and 4. Those are really the, the, the two main things that are being stated and there are a number of ways in which this is filled out, and we'll explain the way in which those are filled out in the passage. And so notice the first thing that is, just, that is said about the Lord Jesus Christ. So in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed the heir of all things, and through whom he also made the worlds. So here God is describing the Lord Jesus Christ in his glory at the beginning and his glory at the end, taking these really in reverse order. The idea is that the Lord Jesus Christ has been made the heir of all things. At the end of time, when all the kings of the world have done their best to acquire whatever glory they want to acquire for themselves, that in the end, the Lord Jesus Christ is the one who will inherit the entire universe. He is the one who is the sovereign Lord of all who will be granted not only the nations, but all of creation because of his glory. And he is also the one by whom everything has been created. In the beginning of, of time, even before time itself began, the Lord Jesus Christ was there with the Father, and by his word, all things came into existence. And so these are the first two things that are said, and we'll just take them in turn. First, notice, the Lord Jesus Christ is called the heir of all things. This is an allusion to, to Psalm 2. If you remember, that's a, a very... Uh, clear messianic text where uh, God's Messiah, uh, the Christ, inherits uh, all the nations. And here it's expanded to include not just the nations, but even the entire universe. Now, the idea of Christ being the heir is another way in which Christ is declared to be the Son. And this, is, this will be the main way in which he's distinguished from the angels in, in verses 5 through 14. Uh, the angels are glorious as spiritual beings, but none of them are Son. The Lord Jesus Christ as Son is more glorious than they are. God has, didn't call any of them Son, but He calls the Son truly the Son, and He has been the Son since the beginning of time. And as the Son then, He has the rights of the firstborn, and because of that, He is in fact the heir of all things. This is really the ultimate statement of supremacy, that in the end, every single power will recognize the glory of the Lord Jesus Christ. And even as Psalm 2 says, Psalm 2 puts this in the context of all the nations raging, all of them trying to fight against God and against his anointed. But what does Psalm 2 say? That he who sits in the heavens laughs. He laughs because he has set his king on Zion, his holy mountain, and he will give to him all of the nations. 
This is the way in which the Lord Jesus Christ is exalted, the way in which he will have a kingdom and a rule that will have no end, that will last even into all eternity, and it will be, perf- and it will be perfected at the end of time. So this is the first thing that's said about the Lord Jesus Christ. And then notice the second thing, again, uh, that through whom also he has made the world. Now, uh, this is another way in which the Lord Jesus Christ is supreme and shows him to be God himself, that there is not one thing that has ever been made, but came about through the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, uh, the word here for worlds, when it says he made the world, is actually uh, the, the word that we get eons from. The idea is it has to do with time, all the ages. So the idea is not just that, that Christ has created the entire universe, but even time itself, all the ages of time and all the things in time. All of that has been created by the Lord Jesus Christ. It was created by him because he himself was outside of it, the one who is the eternal Son of God, always with the Father, who then uh, created all things to show his great supremacy over it all. Now, the doctrine of creation is uh, quite an important doctrine. Um, It is really God's creation of the world that shows definitively his supremacy over all things. You know, the the pagans try to get around this by uh, positing a kind of um, eternal existence of matter, whereby uh, all things kind of emanate from matter in this way or that. Um, and really, this is, re- this is an error that's repeated in evolution. So in, in evolution, there has to be some kind of, of matter that was in existence first, and then from this matter, everything kind of emanates. But against this, uh, the scriptures teach, and the author to the Hebrew says, that all things came about through the Son. He is supreme over all things which have been made. All matter is subject to him. All time has been created by him. This is the way in which the Lord Jesus Christ is supreme. He, was, he will be supreme in the end, and he was supreme in the beginning, and he is always supreme in all the times in between. And note, in all these descriptions then, not one of them can apply to the prophets, and not one of them can apply to the angels. Uh, they are not sons like the Lord Jesus Christ. They are not going to be the heirs of all things, and they are not the ones who has, have created everything. Christ is superior to all. And that is the point that the author is trying to make. Christ is superior to all. Now, then in verses 3 to 4, the author goes on to uh, describe the Lord Jesus Christ further. And it can be a bit tricky to follow the grammar of what's happening. What, what is the actual thing that is being said? There's a number of descriptions of the Lord Jesus Christ. Notice uh, what the text says. Who, being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had made by himself, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high, having become so much better than the angels, as he has by inheritance obtained a more excellent name than they. Now, it can be tricky to follow, but the statement that is really the main idea of the entire clause is that he sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Everything else is grammatically subordinate to that idea. So the idea is, Because Christ is the brightness of the glory of the Father and the express image of his person, who is the one who upholds the universe, he has a right to sit down at the right hand of the majesty on high. And he did this after he made purging for sins, after he made a cleansing of sins. That's that's the the way in which the passage is divided up. And so as we think then, the reasons why it is that the Lord Jesus Christ is supreme— such that he gets to be the one that is enthroned at the right hand of the Father. There are really two reasons that are given, stated in a number of ways. 
and that is that Christ has the divine essence and Christ uh, upholds the universe by the word of his power, that he has divine providence as well. He is fully God. We've already seen that he made all things. He also sustains and upholds all things. Now, the divine essence is stated in two ways in verse 3. Notice, he is the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person. It's really two ways of saying the same thing, and that is that the Son is of the same essence with the Father. Whereas in the scriptures, God says that he will share his glory with no one, yet the Son is declared to be the radiance of his glory. His, his glory is exactly equal to the Father, and when the Son manifests himself, he manifests himself in the radiance of the full glory of the Father. You think of, of ways in which this was shown forth clearly when the Lord Jesus Christ was on earth, uh, in the transfiguration in particular. Uh, Moses comes and he reflects the glory of God. He reflects the glory of another. But when Christ goes up the mountain, he doesn't reflect the glory of another, but he rather shines forth with his own glory because he is the glory of the Father in his person. He doesn't reflect the glory of another, but the, but the glory is native to him. This is why the Lord Jesus Christ also in John chapter 17 prays to the Father to glorify him with the glory that he had with the Father before the world began. This is the, this is the glory that the Son has always had. The glory that the Father will share with no one is yet the Son's by right because the Son and the Father are in fact one God. They are, they are one God. Now notice the other description. He is the brightness of this glory. Radiance or brightness makes use of, makes use of the imagery of light. Like, the idea is like a sun shining in all of its brilliance it is the glory of the sun. The glory being, of course, equal with the Father. Now, the, the word brightness here does not mean that the sun is visible, whereas the Father is invisible. The same thing could be said uh, of the Father. It's merely a description of the greatness of the Son, that in his person he radiates the glory of God and is, in, and is exactly equal to him in that way. And this is said then even further when he is described as the express image of his person, the, the exact representation of his being, you could also translate it. There, there could really hardly be clearer words that could be used to describe the equality of the Son with the Father. The point is, is that the Son is glorious insofar he, as he is of one substance with the Father. He is fully God in every way. And this text really uh, destroys and flies in the face of, of all attempts to subordinate the Son to the Father. Uh, there are, have been many who have done this over the course of history. You think of, of, the, uh, of the Arians. You think of today the, the, the Jehovah's Witnesses. You think of Socinianism, which describes Jesus as merely a man. All of these things fail to recognize the full deity of the Son, and all of them are controverted by Hebrews chapter 1. When the Scriptures describe the Son as Son, what they mean is the Son from all eternity, the Son eternally begotten of the Father, the one who is fully God of God, light of light, very God of very God, the one who was in fact begotten and not made. And the point then is that this is the one. This is the one through whom God has spoken definitively. This is the one who became man and in his becoming man has fully revealed the Father. This is the revelation that has been given, the perfect and complete revelation found in the Lord Jesus Christ. And if then, if then he is equal with God in essence, it must mean also 
that the Son does all the things God always does, he, he himself is uh, being God. And therefore, he did not only create all things, he does not only have the divine essence, but also he upholds the whole universe by the word of his power. He is the one who governs all things in this life such that nothing ever happens in this world except by the, the, the decree of the eternal Son of God. And all things always owe their existence to the eternal Son of God. All things owe their continuance of existence to him. And all things that have ever been received by anyone have been received by the Son of God. He is the one who gives all breath and life to all people. And if the Son of God were to uh, refrain from continuing your existence, you would immediately cease to exist. He is the one who upholds the entire universe by the word of his power. And in his great sovereignty, whereby he governs all things, all things fall out in exact accordance with his sovereign plan. Now notice, very often, uh, for, for instance, in John chapter 1, we read that, the, that uh, Christ is the Word. He is the Word made flesh. In that sense, he is the Word of the Father. There's a sense in which we can describe his relationship to the Father as being Word. Uh, and yet, notice here, the Son himself has a Word. And it is by the Word of the Son that he upholds all things, showing that he is, has full personhood like the Father. He is not anything less than the Father in terms of personhood. Uh, he is a, a fully personal being who is equal with the Father and who upholds uh, all things such that the word of the Son of God can never in any way be thwarted at any time. He is the sovereign ruler of all and his sovereignty is absolute in every way. This, brothers and sisters, is the Son through whom God has spoken. This is the Son through whom God has spoken in the last days. But notice... But notice, even beyond this, it is not merely the case that he is God, the creator of all things, and the one who upholds all things, but he is also our great redeemer. Notice there is a, a, another thing that is said about Christ, not just things that he does as the Son of God always, but that which he does as the incarnate Son, as the one who became man for our salvation uh, in time. And this is related to his enthronement. We're, because we're told that it is after, after he's made a purification for sins, then he sits down at the right hand of the majesty uh, on high. Now, the, the point of this statement is to link the idea of atonement, to link the idea of atonement with enthronement. There's actually a, a link between these two things. The author actually does something very similar in chapter 10, verses 12 to 13, the idea is that, that Christ provides an offering for sins, he atones for sins, and then he sits down at the right hand of the majesty on high until all enemies are placed under his feet, such that his enthronement as king is very much tied to his atonement that he makes as priest. And actually, his enthronement in some ways completes the act of him being a sacrifice for sins. And this is something that, that we see particularly in, in chapter 10, verses 12 and 13, that the, that the one is actually the completion of the other. We see actually something very similar in Zechariah chapter 6, verse, verse 13, where we see that in a, a direct prophecy of the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, the prophet Zechariah says that this one who will be called Branch, a very common uh, name that is given to the, the Messiah in the Old Testament, that the Branch will be the one who builds the house of the Lord, and he will be a priest on his throne. 
he will be a priest as he reigns over all things. And then even further than we, we see here, that his act as priest is, is fulfilled and completed in his enthronement, such that as he is defeating the devil, or if you were to ask it a different way, how he defeats the devil is actually by dying on the cross and providing the sacrifice for sins. He, by death, defeats the one who has the power over death, even the devil, as the author will say in chapter 2, verse 14. And then he ascends on high, whereby in his enthronement, the work of atonement is completed and uh, sin is, in fact, done away with. The the point is to say that this atonement must be made and then there is an exaltation that happens immediately after that. Now, this may be a strange thing to think about. In light of all of this glory, as you think about the way in which the the Son is described, that He is God, that He has created all things, that He upholds all things, you think of the divine essence, you think of creation and providence, all these things belong to the Son. And in this way, you would think it's strange, you you would perhaps think it's strange for the, the author to say that He sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high after doing something. Wouldn't it be the case that He always was at the right hand of the Father? In what sense does He become enthroned after making purification for sins? And the answer is that though He is always reigning as the eternal Son of God, you think of even as we've been going through in the morning services, Matthew chapters 8 and 9, Christ by His miracles shows the authority He always has. The enthronement that's being spoken of here is His enthronement as the God-man, as the one who is enthroned as the Son of God made man to make atonement for sins. And it's in this capacity that he has been enthroned at the right hand of God uh, after making atonement for sins. This is the reason why in Matthew chapters 8 and 9, the Son has authority in all these various ways. It's authority that he always has. And yet it's only in the very last words of the book of Matthew that Christ will declare after his resurrection, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. There's a sense in which Christ, as a son of God, always has authority, and the sense in which he wins authority as the God-man to rule as the redeemer of the entire world. And this is the exaltation that the author to the Hebrews is pointing at. It's very similar to uh, the exaltation given to the son in Philippians chapter 2. He is equal with God, and he, he never gets rid of that equality. And yet he manifests himself in a way that is... Uh, less. He empties himself in that way, such that when you look at him in his incarnation, the Lord Jesus in his incarnation, you don't see the glory. But then he dies and is raised from the dead, and in his resurrection from the dead, he becomes enthroned once again and is given as the God-man the name that is above every name, such that every knee would bow to him in heaven and on earth, and such that then all would recognize that he is, in fact, the Lord of lords, the King of kings, the eternal Son of God, such that you'd be able to look at the man, the person, with your eyes and recognize that he is the one who is reigning at the right hand of God. This, this enthronement builds on Psalm 110, a, a psalm that will be uh, the author will expound in various places all throughout the book of Hebrews. And the point is simply to say that the Lord Jesus Christ reigns over all. He doesn't just reign over all in the sense that he's always reigned, but he reigns over all as our particular king who has saved us from our sins by becoming man for us and dying for us and then being raised in that place such that amazingly, brothers and sisters, amazingly, we then even share in that reign because we are in him. 
We can't share in his reign as he is the eternal Son of God as such, but insofar as he's been exalted to the right hand of the Father as the God-man, as our Redeemer, we do in fact share in that reign by union with him. Now the passage then ends with this, with this uh, comparison with the angels. And of course, uh, at this point, it should be very clear. If this is the Son in whom God has spoken, then very clearly he is higher than all the angels. He is higher than every angel. He is, is higher than any other created being. And if you were to compare the Lord Jesus Christ with even the highest of all the created beings, it's part of the purpose of the comparison to angels, you would see that Christ far surpasses all of them. He far surpasses all of them. Now, brothers and sisters, this is the description of the Lord Jesus Christ that is given in Hebrews chapter 1, verses 1 to 4. And the implication for all of this is very simple, and the question is very simple. Will you obey this Son of God, this Son of God, who is the culmination of all revelation from God? If this is the glory of the one who has made known the Father in time by becoming a man for us to reveal God to us, will you refuse to obey him? Will you show by your actions that you deem him unworthy of your submission? Or will you, with eyes open to seeing his glory, submit your entire lives to him? Remember what the Apostle Paul says in in Romans chapter 12. In light of his mercy, in light of his grace, in light of who the Lord Jesus Christ is, the only reasonable thing is to give your entire lives to him, to offer your bodies as living sacrifices to him. Everything else, everything else uh, shows that you do not yet see with spiritual eyes the glory of the Son. Christ will have all or he will have nothing. Remember what he says in Luke chapter 6. He says, why do you call me Lord? if you do not do what I say. Know this, that this one is the Lord, not just in some temporal sense as as earthly kings, but he is the Lord of lords, the King of kings, the eternal Son of God, to whom is due all worship and glory and obedience. May it be that God would grant you the grace to submit to the Son, to believe in him, to live a life of obedience all your days to the praise and glory of his name. Let's pray. Oh, Father, how we do thank you, how we do praise you for your Son, the Lord Jesus Christ, Lord, the one who is incomprehensibly great. Help us always, Lord, to be able to see his glory in this way. Uh, May we not be spiritually blind, but may our eyes be opened. And may our eyes being opened, may it lead to us obeying in everything that we would see that even if even if you were to call us to give our lives for you that that would be a quite a small thing for you to ask us in light of the glory of this one in whom you spoke uh, when you sent your son to be born of a woman to bear the full weight of our sins lord help us to see his glory We do ask it in the name of Jesus. Amen. Thanks for listening. 
If you'd like to find out more about our church, please visit our website at newcovenantopc.com. You can also follow us on YouTube, Facebook, and Instagram. May God enlighten the eyes of your heart, that through the preached word your eyes may be opened to behold the glory of Christ more and more.